this is Mark Rabin. Welcome to today's webinar titled, How to Ease the Pain of Change. Our presenter today is Jamie Parker. And before I introduce Jamie, let me cover a little bit about the logistics for the hour that we have together today. So I wanna introduce Jamie. She is on a mission to make the world of work more human so that the world becomes a more caring place. As a trainer, coach, speaker, and business partner, she helps leaders leave a legacy in their business, for their customers, and in the lives of the people they serve. With 15 years experience in operations leadership across retail, service, and manufacturing environments, Jamie brings a passion for helping leaders break the habits of traditional management approaches to create environments primed for employee fulfillment. So I met Jamie a couple of years ago when uh, she was in the, uh, the Dallas area for some meetings and have really um, enjoyed following uh, her on her journey uh, to starting her own company. We also collaborated uh, a year or two, maybe two years ago, uh, where Jamie is the author of chapter six in the book Practicing Lean uh, that I put together and edited. You can find that at practicinglean.com. Jamie is a regular speaker and workshop facilitator at Lean conferences and training events, including the Association for Manufacturing Excellence and the American Society for Quality. I think as you'll find in today's webinar, Jamie brings an opus, open, honest, vulnerable, and engaging approach to lean leadership development. And with that, I will turn it over to you, Jamie. Thanks for presenting today. Great. Thank you, Mark. I am uh, really excited to be here and appreciate uh, you and Connexus for hosting this webinar. Um, I have to tell you that I am a recovering command and control manager. So as I was growing up in authoritarian management, uh, you know, I learned things like check your emotions at the door, leave your personal problems at home. It's not personal, it's business, right? It's kind of like the Tom Hanks, A League of Their Own, where he says, there's no crying in baseball, except that there is, right? Business is personal and change is also inevitable. Whether we are changing markets or changing customer demands or facing changing technologies, the reality is that business involves change and business involves people, which means that emotions come into play and kind of general human behavior is at play. So when we combine these two, um, you know, sometimes we have experiences like this when we are trying to facilitate change or lead through change in our organizations, right? So has anybody here ever had these types of experiences? I know I certainly have. And the truth is that lean transformations involve a ton of change, not just in what we do and how we work, but also in how we think. And the problem is that, that left untreated, the natural human reactions to change hold us back. Um, it might slow us down or limit the adoption or impact sustainability. And these are real risks that if we just kind of go about business as usual, we may actually suffer these and it may hurt what we're trying to achieve in solving problems and serving and creating value for our customers, our organizations and our people. And so the countermeasure to this is to really purposefully lead through change, uh, not just leave it to chance, but to really get purposeful about how we want to, to lead through change in our organizations. Now, I want to start off today just talking about one teaching that is flat out wrong. And so 
I was working in an organization managing retail locations and we had a ton of change happening. So all the managers went to a training class and it was all about change management. And they taught us about the enablers, the resistors and the what? the fence sitters. And they said, hey, all of those resistors, they said, what you want to do is you want to take them out of the equation. And the way you do that is that you give them busy work that has nothing to do with the change itself. Just try and get them out of your way. And then they asked us to do something. We had to write down enabler, fence sitter, and resistor as the headings of three different columns on our sheet of paper. And they said, okay, think through your entire team and write down where each person falls. What are they? And I thought, oh, Kevin is a resistor, man. He is so difficult. He just makes everything so hard. He complains about everything and just so resistant to change. So I wrote Kevin down under resistor. And when I went back to my my store to manage through this change, Kevin was a resistor and therefore I did what? I treated him like a resistor. And when I treated him like a resistor, what do you think happened? He acted like one. And the problem with labels is that they seem permanent. And that makes changing seem impossible because once I decided that Kevin was gonna resist this change, I really didn't leave him any option to, to act or behave or think differently. And so what we need to do instead is to stop labeling and move from a place of judgment to a place of respect. And this really aligns with respect for people and continuous improvement as these pillars of lean and understanding that everything that we're gonna talk about today, this reaction to change is a natural human reaction. And so we wanna stop ourselves from labeling. So now that I got that out of the way, we're going to dig into this model about uh, leading through change, really looking to ease the pain of change, make it just a little bit easier. And you're going to see a lot of stuff on these slides. I am not covering everything on it because we would be here for hours, but I wanted to add in the information because you are getting the slide downloads and you may reference back to this at a later time. I wanted to make sure that it would be meaningful for you. So we're going to jump in with understanding the psychology of change and specifically talk about three change constructs or change models that are relevant. And we're going to start with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, I'm guessing that most of you have seen this before or something like this before. So I'm not going to go dig into a lot of detail here. Um, If you want to learn more, you can Google it. You'll find all kinds of information. But the key here to know and to understand is how this relates to change, because this is all about fear and the fear of needs not being met. And when we introduce change, people tend to fall into lower categories. So I might be fearful that um, I am not um, successful as, as successful as I could have been. I'm no longer the expert. I don't fit in or I'm fearful that I'm going to lose my job and I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage, right? So all of that can come into play when we introduce change. So just want you to keep that in mind and we'll reference it as we go. The second change construct I want to talk about is the competency model. And I am going to explain this model within um, a task that we all know how to do, and that is tying our shoes. So this is my niece, Emery. And when Emery was this age, she was unconsciously incompetent at tying her shoes. She didn't know how to do it, nor did she care. Like she didn't even know it was a thing because all of her shoes were either Velcro or slip-on shoes. So it was really like shoe tying bliss. 
At some point, Emery went to school and some of her friends started to learn how to tie their shoes. And now she became consciously incompetent, meaning she still didn't know how to do it, but now she was aware. And that's a really uncomfortable place to be Again, going back to that hierarchy of needs where mm, I don't fit in, I'm maybe not smart enough, maybe I don't know how to do this thing that other people do. So it's a very uncomfortable place to be. Now Emery just finished her first grade year and she is consciously competent at tying her shoes. If she really focuses and, and pays attention, she can do it. She doesn't always get it on the first try, it takes her longer, but if she pays attention and really focuses and isn't distracted, she can competently tie her shoes. And for some people, this makes it a little bit more comfortable because they're learning. But for others, it's still a really uncomfortable place because we're not expert yet. The other thing that happens in this area is that there is a risk. And that is that sometimes they are trying to get out the door. And Emery's mom just doesn't have time, right? They are in a hurry, they need to get up out the door and ain't nobody got time to wait for a seven-year-old to tie her shoes for five minutes. And so her mom will jump in and say, here, let me do it for you. And she ties her shoes real quick so they can get out the door. But then that sends a message, right? And so there's a risk in how we partner and interact with people when they're in this consciously competent learning stage. Now, at some point with practice, Emory is going to become unconsciously competent at shoe tying, just like all of you and, and just like I am. In fact, if she were to try and teach somebody, she would probably have to think about it, right? Have you ever had an operator who was an expert at a process and you've asked them to help write standard work, for example, and you find that they're skipping all of these steps because it really is unconscious. They're not even aware that they're doing this. And so again, she makes it back to shoe tying bliss. It's just a little bit different than the unconsciously incompetent bliss. So this is the model and you can see the arrows going back and forth, but there's one key piece here. When we introduce change, we are often moving people from unconsciously competent to consciously incompetent. I am an expert in my job. This is how we work and think, we know this. And now there is this new way of thinking or new way of doing. I'm aware of it because you told me about the change, but I'm incompetent, I'm not an expert yet. And that's really uncomfortable. In fact, Edgar Schein, who's really a thought leader on organizational culture, calls this learning anxiety. And he says it's based on fears, the fear of temporary incompetence. I'm gonna suck at this. The fear of punishment for incompetence. I'm gonna get in trouble, I'm gonna lose my job, people are gonna laugh at me, I'm going to be embarrassed. The fear of loss of personal identity. You know, I'm the fill in the blank guy, or I'm the fill in the blank gal, or I'm the expert at this. Everyone asks me when they have questions about this process or this skill or this task. And now that we're changing that, I'm not gonna be the expert anymore and I lose a little bit of my personal identity. And the fear of loss of group membership. What if I'm the slow one? What if everybody else gets it faster than I do and I'm the slow one and then I don't fit in? Or the flip side, what if I embrace this and really try it while everyone else resists it and now they're mad at me for going along with it, right? These fears, thinking back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, create learning anxiety, which really adds to the challenges of the competency model and how we react as people when change is introduced to us. And then the last 
change construct I want to touch base on is the change curve. And this is based off the Kubler-Ross grief cycle. Um, and it turns out that this grief process really is for any loss, not just loss through death, but also loss through, you know, I lost my job, I lost my marriage, um, the kids went off to, to college and now I'm an empty nester. This is all loss. And because of that, it applies to change as well. Because if you think about change, change is the ending of the old way. So it's the loss of the old way of thinking or the old way of behaving. And so we have a very similar process here. We kind of start with this denial and shock, maybe move into fear and anger and frustration, then to bargaining, acceptance and hope, and then finally enthusiasm and commitment. And there are a few things that I want to just touch base here. I mean, I could spend the entire hour just talking about this, but I want to just, just call out a few different things. The first is that notice that we have the ending at the far left and the new beginning at the far right. So, so often when we introduce change, we expect those to be simultaneous. We stopped doing it the old way. We started doing it. This was our launch, right? We launched this chain, we change. We implemented, I'm air quoting, you can't see me. We implemented this change and we expect that it's almost automatic that these happen simultaneously. And the reality is that there's a process that happens between the ending and the new beginning. So they're not simultaneous. The other thing is note that there's kind of that circle down in the bottom when we get the dip. And that really is meant to represent that for a lot of us, we tend to kind of get stuck there, right? We'll cycle through and maybe we're frustrated. Then we start to, to get a little bit of acceptance, but then we hit a, a roadblock with it or an obstacle, obstacle comes up and we go, see, I told you. And we go back kind of backwards there. Um, so that's something I just want to call out. And then the final thing is this you know, shows the arrows going as if everything moves in one direction and follows through all these steps. And that's just not true. It is not linear. Um, people will skip steps. They will move around. Um, it's not necessarily that everyone on every change goes through every stage here. Um, and in fact, Kubler-Ross recognized this, you can see in her last, um, that last little quote there, where she talks about, you know, hey, this is not um, linear stops on this grief timeline. What this is, is these are tools that help us identify and frame what it is we're feeling. And that applies to the change curve as well. So if you're taking notes along with the worksheet, probably looks something like this, that these are three change constructs that are really important in helping us understand and realize that as we experience change, we have some natural human reactions, and that is a shared experience. So that whole moving from labeling, right, to, to understanding and respect, that's a shared experience. And so we have these change constructs, and these is kind of this, here's the overview of them. But now I want to talk about how do we set the foundation for change? Um, because it's one thing to have an idea about the psychology of change, but what do I do, right? That's always the question we wanna know, but what do I do? And the first step we already talked about, which is to stop labeling. We wanna move ourselves from a place of judgment to a place of respect. The second, and this is really key and critical, so I hope that you definitely take this down, is that you wanna teach these change constructs to every team member. And whether, it's, whether you use these three or if, if there's a different uh, model that you like to use, the key is to not just teach 
change theory or psychology of change or human behavior to managers or to change agents or to your continuous improvement practitioners, but to actually teach these change constructs to everybody in the organization. Because when we do that, it normalizes human behavior and starts to reduce that fear, right? So that fear that we talked about, whether it's through the hierarchy of needs or the competency model and the learning anxiety, or even the fear that happens as we're kind of the ending of the old way, trying to move toward the new beginning, it reduces that and it creates this shared language that you can use as a, um, foundation for open dialogue. And so here's my tip here, is do not teach from a purely academic or information standpoint. You want to share stories and encourage others to share stories that drive connection, right? That makes us all understand, hey, we're going through this together. And you also want to create activities that will give people an opportunity to experience these change reactions in a safe space. So those are some key tips there that you just don't want to just use PowerPoint. You really want to create stories and experiences. And then finally, we want to create psychological safety. Now, again, we could spend weeks upon weeks talking about how do we do this and practicing this. Um, so you can see some keys here, but a couple that I want to really just hone in on is the first is our response to failure, right? When we have red on our dashboard or someone makes a mistake or we have a failure to a customer, how do we respond? Because how we respond to that failure really determines how safe people feel in the organization. And the other is this idea of process plus results in that mo a lot of organizations that are more traditional organizations tend to be results only. Hit the number, hit the number, hit the number. Make your month, month make your quarter, right? And what we really want to look at is we want to really care about results. It's not process only. We don't swing the pendulum all the way over, but we want to put results in their place within the context of process. So those are the three steps to set the foundation for change. This is all kind of overview stuff um, of what we need to do in general. Now what I want to do is I want to talk about how we lead through each change. So think about this from a standpoint of every time you have a major change or even a medium-sized change, you're going to follow these eight steps. And if you're taking notes, we're gonna actually go through every single one of these in detail. So if you don't get them all down right now, that's okay. And then you'll see this again at the end. So again, while we talked about the foundational stuff, now we wanna talk about the transactional stuff with each change. So the first step is to get clear on the core message. And out in the Lean community, we hear a lot about um, wanting to change the culture. We wanna create a lean culture. We wanna create a continuous improvement culture. right? We wanna create a people-centric culture. And, and Shine says, hey, you know what? You can't just go after culture change. You really need to define the change goal in terms of a specific problem you're trying to fix. And so that's really what this core message is about, understanding that it is not an elevator pitch, right? A lot of times when we're talking about messaging, what is our message about our change, we go straight to, well, how are we going to sell it to them or convince them? I'm going to use air quotes again. How do we get buy-in or how do we get people on board? And I'm going to ask you to think about getting clear on the core message a little differently. First, it's about getting clear on the pain. 
What is the problem we are trying to solve and why does it matter? And I feel like in the lean community, we're really good at asking that first question, what problem are we trying to solve? Sometimes gloss over that second one. So what? So what that that's a problem? Why does it matter? Who cares? What's the pain of having that problem in our current state? And then the second is the pleasure, right? So what is the vision for the post-change future? How will things be better? How will it make our lives better? What's the benefit, not just in a corporate standpoint, but for real, what's the future state? Why should I care? How am I going to understand the difference between the pain in the current state and the pleasure in the future state? Now, our step two is to understand underlying beliefs. And to talk about this, I'm gonna use the ABCs of organizational culture, which is out of the Creating a Kaizen Culture book. And so at the top, you have artifacts. And those are that's the stuff. So in a, a lean environment, it might be the 5S tape or the 5S checklist, or the Kanban cards, or your visual management boards, or your standard work documents, right? That's all the stuff. And then we have the behaviors, which is kind of what people do. So the artifacts and behaviors make up the what we do. Now, beneath that, though, we have our core beliefs, and that's all about why we do it. Keeping in mind that artifacts are visible, some behaviors are visible, some aren't, and core beliefs are invisible. You can't see core beliefs. But the thing is, belief drives behavior. So understanding what those core beliefs are critical. And I wanna give you an example of how this works. So in culture, when you think about the culture of your organization, or even more importantly, the culture of your team, right? There are shared underlying beliefs that everyone on that team believes. So if, for example, in, we have a shared underlying belief that getting work done is how we each add value to the team, but then you are trying to facilitate change, maybe you're introducing daily huddles that are 15 minutes out of production, or you're looking at a kata routine or gimbo walks, or you know maybe you're doing um, some sort of problem solving where people actually leave their workstation to be involved in problem solving and improvements. Well, when you try to do that, but that goes against our shared, shared belief that productivity and getting work done is how we add value to the team, then the fear and the pain and the resistance is greater. Because this isn't just saying, hey, do something differently. You're asking us to do something that goes against this belief that we all share. And so, we want to try to understand those underlying beliefs. And this is hard to do. So the most often question I get is, well, how do I do that? Because I can't see them. And in fact, if I went and asked people, what are our shared underlying beliefs? They wouldn't even know how to tell me. And so what we're really talking about is looking at where, who do we say we are? What do we say we do? And then on the flip side, what do we actually do and who are we actually? Right. Where there's a gap, that is the biggest place to explore underlying beliefs. So, for example, if we say that we blame the process, not the person, and that's what we say. But in reality, what we do is when a failure happens, we ask who's involved, then there's a disconnect. What we say we do and what we actually do aren't the same. And we want to start looking in to figure out why is that the case? What has happened in the past that would make me think this or that would help um, encourage certain beliefs among the team. And so this is hard to do, but I would encourage you to try it. 
And even if you can't figure it out or it takes you several times, you want to go to the next step, which is what are the alternative beliefs that they would need to hold? Because those alternative beliefs are need to be central to both your communication, your messages, as well as your behaviors, right? So think about um, how do we uncover underlying beliefs? Does this change go against an underlying belief? And if so, what are those alternative beliefs we need to hold? All right, so step three is all about generating team member involvement. Now, this first bullet is key, so if you um, are taking notes or bold or underline, asterisk this on your paper. So when you are implementing a change, you want to retrain or revisit the change constructs with the most impacted team members. Yep, every time. At first, it might actually be a mini training. Right, because remember we tr already trained everybody. Now we have a change that we're introducing that's gonna impact these people. And so we want to go back to those change constructs. And so at first it might be a retraining. As you do this more often, it's just a revisit. Hey, just a reminder, this is the change curve. Remember when we did that activity and we talked about where we all fell. As we go through this change, we wanna remember that we're going to experience this change curve again. Right, so it's kind of revisiting that. Now, when you think about getting team member involvement, in addition to just involving them in the discussion about change, is that when possible, of course, you want to involve the most impacted people in the change decision. But I don't know about you, I can tell you that I've had to lead through quite a lot of changes that I had no input in myself, right? So maybe it's a top-down, or maybe it's coming uh, from a different department in the organization, or it's a technology decision that is global across the organization. And so there's not an opportunity for me or anyone else to get involved in that decision. And so in those mandated changes, you still want to think about who are the people most impacted and how can I listen to them to hear their concerns? Because I'm not at this point trying to change their minds, right? What I am trying to do is to learn and understand. And I want you to think of this as mining for gold where those objections equal gold because I'm probably going to learn one of two things. I'm either going to learn something that really is a legitimate objection or concern that we need to get in front of and figure out how we can solve that and make that better, right? So I might learn that. The other thing I might learn is that, you know, those objections are not really founded in fact. They're really founded in fear. But now I have a better understanding of where this person is coming from. So as we work together through this change, I can understand which fears are triggering and we can partner together on that. So think about how different that is, right? Mining for gold, looking for those objections compared to how I treated Kevin right, the resistor at the beginning of the session, right, where I said, oh, let me ignore him, let me give him busy work, let me get him out of the way. Two very different approaches, which yield two very different responses. All right, so now we're going to go to step four, and step four is making communication frequent, varied, and ongoing. So the first thing I want to say is, I don't know how many times you think you need to communicate something, go ahead and write it out and then like double it and then double it again and keep going. Um, but one of the things we do is we think about communication as these formal launches, right? We're gonna have a team meeting or we're gonna have a daily meeting or shift huddle and it's some formal let me tell you about it. 
And I want you to take communication beyond that and think about every single interaction that you have with people. How can you bring communication in, about this change into those interactions? And then we want to make sure we use all three languages. So auditory is I tell you and you listen. Visual is I show you. Maybe I've got pictures or videos or charts. And tactile is the hands-on. So maybe we run a simulation or we do an experiential learning activity, right? Or maybe we actually say, well, let's walk through this together and let's try this out together. So different people learn differently uh, and you wanna make sure that you're not just using one type of language, that you're using all three. And then of course, don't stop just because the change implementation has, is, has started or the change has been introduced. And I, I love this quote because I feel like it, um, really just captures the essence of communication where he says the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place and I find that to be so true all right so we're halfway through our eight steps so let's move on to step five which is all about creating and celebrating short game wins and you know, there's this fancy schmancy uh, academic quote here from Shine, but what he's really saying is that you know, culture is shaped through repeated successes that confirm the new core beliefs, behaviors, and artifacts, right? Thinking back to the ABCs of culture that um, we talked about earlier. Right? So we want those repeated successes that confirm this new way of thinking, new way of behaving. And John Cotter also talks about the role of short, what he calls short-term wins. Um, and, and you can see that this is something that really keeps showing up in the literature. So here's what I want to encourage you to do and to think about when it comes to short game wins. And that is to plan them in advance. That you wanna actually say, okay, where are we going to get some short game wins? And be on the lookout for those so that you can celebrate them. And so often when we think about wins, we think about results and metrics, right? But if you think about that competency model, you might actually see a dip the first week or two, right? You might see productivity go down because we're only consciously competent. We're like Emery tying her shoe. And so you wanna look beyond just results and metrics. Think about the processes, think about the behaviors, think about the experiences we have together. Think about learning, what did we learn? Those are all examples of short game wins that you can celebrate so you can create these repeated successes. And I like to, to think of this like an Easter egg hunt. So I do not have kids, but I went to my neighborhood Easter egg hunt and um, we have some older kids in the neighborhood. And I think the parents were just not quite ready to let go of having them old enough to not participate. So uh, we could call it manipulation or parent uh, Jedi ninja trick, but they put money inside the fake eggs. So there were eggs that had five, 10 and $20 bills in them to coerce the older kids into playing, right? He's doing this Easter egg hunt. And so we went and said, okay, everybody go. And you know, these little kids here, they were so cute. They just started wandering, right? Just walking through the grass. But that is not what those old kids looking for money were doing. They had a plan and they had enough experience. They knew what the most likely best egg hiding places were. So when he said go, they went running off looking for those eggs that they expected to find. 
And if they got to a tree that they thought would have an egg in it and didn't, they didn't just circle around the tree thinking they could manifest it. They moved on and went to the next most likely place, right? Like, oh, was wrong. That didn't materialize. Let me go on to the next one. And if they were moving from one place to another and they saw an egg somewhere just lying in the grass or lying in a bush that they didn't expect it, they didn't just keep going past it. They still grabbed it, right? And that's what it's like with our short game wins. We want to have a plan so that we know where we think they're going to be so that we can actually capitalize and celebrate on them. But we want to remain flexible. If they're not there, keep moving. And if you see one that you didn't even know was going to happen, grab that one and celebrate it too. So that's my little analogy there for you on that one. All right, going into step six is to solicit and respond to feedback. Now, this looks a lot like the communication slide, right? <laughs> Frequent, varied, and ongoing. Um, and the thing I want to really point out here is when we talk about using all three languages, I want to share with you what that could sound like, or, right? So when we think about auditory, you can ask a question like, can you explain it to me? And that way they can tell you and you can listen and hear. When you think about visual language and getting feedback, you can ask a question like, hey, can, can you draw it out for me? Can you take a picture for me? Can you take a video of that so I can see it? Can you draw it out for me, right? And then I can see, and they, they go through and they do the drawing. Great way to engage and solicit feedback. And then the tactile is, can you show me? And then once they show you, you say, hey, can I try it now? And then you get to experience what they're experiencing. And this can change the level of feedback that you're getting, the type of feedback, and the effectiveness of the feedback that you are getting throughout your change. Now, there's one other thing I want to mention about uh, soliciting and responding to feedback, is that you want to create safe and easy mechanisms for feedback. So I want to tell you about Taylor. Taylor is a plant manager, and he had responsibility for leading a workflow change in his plant. And he and four of his team members were involved in the development of the workflow, but they couldn't involve everybody. And some of their feedback got overruled because 18 different plants were all going to do the same workflow. So some things they didn't get their way on. And so now they're responsible, the decisions have been made, and they're responsible for executing this workflow change. And so, you know, Taylor started with the communication and he started asking for feedback. And what he found was that the four people who were involved were giving him feedback. And then there were a couple of people who complained about everything who were giving him feedback. But the other 50-ish people on his team, he just wasn't really getting meaningful feedback. And so I asked him to try a different technique. And specifically, he went ahead and created a flip chart that said, you know, with a plus delta. A lot of you have seen this before. So plus, what's working well? And the delta could be better if. And so he, you know, took it out. It's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He told the team, here's what I've got. Here's markers. Here's Sharpies. You know, all of this stuff. And, you know, as you go about your day, if you could capture this. So he went home and the, the plant runs 24 hours. So uh, kind of went through the overnight. He came back in the next morning and he had two complete pages of feedback, both on the pluses and the deltas in less than 24 hours. And, and the reason that happened is because it was safe, right? Hey, I can just write this down. I'm not put on the spot in front of someone. And it was also easy because this flip chart was sitting exactly where the change was happening in the process. 
So exactly where the implementation was happening, that is where this was. So if I'm going about my day and I'm trying to get work out, you know, I can easily jot this down real quick in the moment when it happens. But once that happens, I've moved on. So when you come back and ask me at the end of my shift or, the, or tomorrow at the beginning of my shift, what went well and what didn't, like, I don't remember. I, I was too busy trying to get work done. So this is a technique. There are a lot of other techniques out there, I'm sure, um, that people can share with you. But I wanted to share this because um, I think Taylor's feelings were hurt a little bit. Like, oh, my goodness, am I a bad leader that people don't want to talk to me? Um, but it really was about creating both a safe and easy mechanism for feedback. And then we're going to go to step number seven. And step seven is to drive connection through shared language and experiences. And you're going to see this theme come up. So we talked about the change constructs at the beginning. And we said we want to set the foundation by teaching the change constructs to everyone. And then when we talked about step three, generate team member involvement, we said, oh, yeah. And the people who are most impacted by the change, you want to revisit the change constructs with them as we start this change, as we initiate this change. Now in step seven, we're going to say, hey, we want you to make change discussions the norm. So not just at the beginning where we revisit these change constructs, but throughout change, we want to engage in dialogue about not just the process, the workflow, the activity, the Kanban system, right, the new technology software, like not just about that part, but the process of change. And so there we're going to share our own stories and we're going to ask for stories and we're going to ask questions. We're going to say, hey, on this change, where do you think you are on the change curve? Why, why do you think that is? Where would you like to be? What do you think would happen, would need to happen to get you there? Right, and we start talking about it. We talk about the competency model. Which, quad, which quadrant do you think you're in? Oh, okay, so you know this uh, quadrant that you're finding yourself in, consciously competent. Remember when we did this activity? You're probably going to be there for a little bit. How do you think we can make the most of it while you're in this quadrant? And we start having conversations. We start building connection, right? And this starts easing the pain because this is a shared experience. This is not, hey, you resistor, get on board. This is, hey, let's walk through this together. And now we have the foundation. We have the framework to have the conversations. Just like Kubler-Ross said about the grief cycle. It's not, these are not stops on some linear you know, pathway. What this is, is this is the framework that we can use to identify and discuss what it is we're feeling, where we are, and how we can move forward. So this is key, and I definitely encourage you to think about how this might impact your business. All right, so last one, step eight, is to systematically work on improvement. So as you know, lean practitioners or as leaders who are practicing lean, we understand using um, you know, problem-solving cycles or improvement cycles to improve the work, right? The work on the floor, <laughs> the work that, that people do. What we need to do is we need to apply those cycles to improving our leadership and to improving how we lead through change. Because first of all, the process can improve. So in fact, if you have ideas and you've learned ways to improve this process, please let me know so I can incorporate that as I teach people this model. 
and then also your skill can improve. And so uh, taking in the improvement methodologies that we already know and practice and love and applying them to our leadership and how we lead through change is an important step that we don't wanna miss. So if you are taking notes, probably look something like this. Um, and here's what I want you to know is that this can seem like a lot, but it's really only a lot the first few times. After you do this two or three times, it, you're gonna start to create some habits and you're gonna start to get better skill at it and it's gonna move through a lot more quickly. And so what I love about this is that if you do this over and over for a year and two years, what you're gonna find is that it will change your culture. In fact, I was uh, talking with uh, Ben, who's a former direct reporter of mine at a different organization, and we were just chatting about, you know, his kid, and he's moving, and he's packing up his house, and then he was telling me a little bit about work, and they are changing the incentive um, calculations, the metrics involved in how they calculate incentives for all of the managers as well as all the 600 employees in this department. So I said, how, how's that working for you? Like, what, how do you feel about it? And he said, well, you know what? And I, this is word for word, I promise you, this is exactly what he said. He said, well, I moved through the change curve pretty quickly on this. So now I'm really just focused on helping you know, my peers, the other plant managers, move through it as well so they can better support their team through, through the implementation and change on the incentive plan. What a game changer, right? When you have people on your team who not just can move themselves through the change, quick, change curve quicker and easier and with less pain, but then they also can partner with their colleagues and say, well, let me help you. Let's work through this together. Here was the thought process I went through. Here were the objections I had and how I overcame came them. And that's what's going to change your culture. And it's going to make uh, just change in general, a less painful activity throughout your organization. So here's what I want to provide for you. I um, am a big advocate of doing, of practicing, right? So, uh, so I love the book, Practicing Lean. I love the idea of practicing, of falling down and getting back up. And I want to make sure that we didn't just have this 40-minute webinar where I, you know, share some information with you, but that I am supporting you through your practice, through your doing. So you can go to this link and download a workbook that's going to go through those eight steps that we just talked about. And it will ask you questions in each one of those steps that you can kind of answer and go through the planning. And I'll show that um, link on some additional slides as well if you need to catch it. So this is what we've covered, right? <laughs> A lot of stuff, and I thought about well, what do I cover because it's only 40 minutes, and I, but I wanted you to see how it all fits together, and if there's a certain part of it that you want to dig, dig deeper on, we can then you know, do something else about that part. But what I want to ask you is before you walk away from your computer, before you shut down this window and start checking email, right? I want you to ask yourself two questions and write the answers down or type them or put them in your phone, whatever methodology you used. So the first question is, what about this model are you most excited to try? What is it that really resonated with you that you said, you know, I don't know, I think that might actually help. And you're really excited to try that.
And the second question is, how could using this model improve your business? How could it help ease the pain of change to improve your business? And I encourage you, before you walk away, to write down the answers, because we have all done it. We've all gone to a training class or a webinar and thought, oh, that was cool, and then we got sidetracked by our day jobs. And so this is going to help you kind of come back and refresh why you want to take certain pieces from this. Because if we do this, then it opens up a lot of possibility. And the part, you know, there's a lot of things as far as helping with adoption and moving through more quickly and sustainability. But what I really love is that repeated use of this model really does start to impact your culture. And then you have a team full of bends, right? A team full of people who can move themselves through the change and help and support each other. And so what I would ask for you is I believe you're going to get a survey and I want to always continuously improve so please take that survey and then in closing there's one last thing I want to share so so many of us are not the CEOs of our organization right and because of that sometimes we think oh well this won't work for me in my company we we change too often we bounce around change to change so this won't work or my boss doesn't have the patience for this, right? And we, we just feel like it won't work for us. And I want to encourage you to think about how you can take pieces of this from wherever you are in the organization and understand that you do have influence and you do have impact. And so I want to leave you with this quote, this Mother Teresa quote. It says, regardless of where you are in your organization, she says, I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast many stones across the water to create many ripples. And that's really the influence we have, regardless of where our organization is. And if you start practicing this model, then you're going to start casting stones that really create ripples and impact throughout your organization and throughout the people that you serve. So thank you so much for your time today. I'm actually going to turn it over, back over to Mark uh, for announcements and Q&A. Well, thanks, Jamie. I would encourage people to go ahead and continue submitting questions. If you want to answer Jamie's questions about what you're excited to try or how you could use this model, um, we'd be curious if you have thoughts on that. So I want to say, great job, Jamie. I am not using air quotes there. <laughs> which you couldn't see if I was, but I'm not. Um, really, really great presentation. We've got a couple comments um, from participants who uh, agree. So there's a couple of announcements while questions are coming in. Our next webinars, uh, July 17th, might be of particular interest if you are a Kinexus customer. Kinexus Q2 product updates, what is changing and better in our Kinexus system. On January 20, uh, January, gosh, July 24th, Greg Jacobson, our CEO, and I will be doing episode 20 of our Ask Us Anything series. Uh, you can submit questions um, to us through the registration process for that webinar. And then our next presentation style webinar is going to be on uh, August 14th. Dwayne Butcher from Lean Frontiers and uh, a colleague of his, uh, talking on the theme of people development with a focus and emphasis on coaching. TWI, which is training within industry, um, a great methodology there. 
and Kata, Toyota Kata methodology. So you can find information about those at kinexus.com slash webinars. We invite you to check out some other resources, including our blog, which you can find at blog.kinexus.com. We have our webinar library, and Jamie's presentation will be part of that library. Uh, if you can't get enough webinars, there are dozens of webinars out there from the past couple of years. You can find a link uh, to that by going to kinexus.com slash webinars. Look on the right-hand side. You'll see uh, a big old call to action to click on that. And we also have podcasts. The audio from today's presentation will be in our podcast feed. Uh, the recording will also be made available through our YouTube channel and will be sent out to you via email. But you can subscribe to our podcast series um, through any of the normal ways you might find podcasts. So we have uh, time for uh, Q&A. We've got contact info. Uh, practicinglean.com is uh, the URL for the book, and, and uh, I've put a link uh, to Jamie's workbook in uh, the chat box that you should find. I'm also clicking send. I'm sharing uh, a special coupon link. If you would like to download a free copy of Practicing Lean, this link will allow you to do so. If you choose to pay using the slider um, that adjusts the price, keep in mind that 100% of the author proceeds are being donated uh, to a really good cause, the Louise H. Batts Patient Safety Foundation, or I'd encourage you to download the book for free and make a, a donation directly to the foundation. Um, so we've got comments. Gene said, brilliant presentation. We're doing bits of this, but has been, this was put together so well. Thanks. James said, kudos to Jamie uh, for the webinar. Very engaging and dynamic. Uh, we definitely got a gold mine. <laughs> Here. So not, not the goal of feedback, but the goal of a good presentation. I will definitely follow Jamie's work after this webinar. Very fortunate to attend. And um, let's see, I hope, I hope this will be on the website very soon because I have a whole heap of people here to watch it immediately. Um, yes, the presentation, um, the slides are available to, to Andrew who asked. You can click under the handout section of the control panel. Uh, there's a link in the chat box to slide share, and you'll also get it sent to you via email. All right, so now questions. Jamie, what started you on the path to recovery from being a command and control leader? What was the spark? Oh, what a great question. Um, so I, I can, I'm going to tell you the start, the spark, and then I'm going to tell you the kind of kicker. Um, so the spark was that I like, was having this little you know, midlife something where I was, I guess it was about five or six years ago. And I was traveling with my, my boss at the time. And I said, you know, like, I'm smart. I thought I was going to do something more with my career, right? Like I'm managing print shops, you know, what's the big deal? And he said, and he, he really just talked, he said, look, let's talk about the, the lives that you're impacting. And we talked about Jorge and we talked about how he's able to give his children a different type of life than what he had growing up. And, you know, we just w went through several people that were in my uh, span of care who, um, you know, were having this influence because of the way that I was leading them and opportunities I was giving them. And so that was kind of the first spark that said, okay, maybe mm -hmm. I need to think about my impact in the world a little differently, right? Um, and then what really kicked it off was, you know, I was already doing that. I was talking with, um, you know, fans of the Gimby Academy folks, so Steve Kane and Kevin Meyer and kind of some 
unofficial mentoring getting uh, that I was getting from them. And then um, at one of the AME conferences in Jacksonville, Simon Sinek was the closing keynote and he did his um, Leaders Eat Last talk. And that was the big spark, you know, where he talks about the chemicals and, you know, the circle of safety. And so that was where I had the ideas. And then I went, whoa, that makes sense. Like, I get it now and just went full force from there. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how, you know, in our careers, we all have that chance encounter with somebody or an important mentor who uh, has an impact like that. And, you know, I think the stone you cast today uh, with the webinar is going to have ripples um, like that as well. Um, follow up question here. Um, do you have any thoughts on how we might open a CEO's eyes about command and control? Because they might not view that as a problem at our organization, the top five or six people are making all of the decisions and that doesn't work. Yeah, you know, this is such a common experience that I hear and that I experienced myself, by the way, right, is working in an organization that is a traditional organization. Um, meanwhile, at whatever level I'm at, right, so at a mid-level or senior level management, um, I want to do things differently. <laughs> and that's not always easy because there's not always alignment with that. And, you know, I will tell you that I tried some things like I tried sharing uh, TED Talks and I tried to do a lot of experience um, stuff with some of the senior leaders that uh, worked more traditional command and control. And I didn't get a ton of traction there. And so I actually decided that I was going to change my tactic and say, you know what, I um, am going to focus my efforts on where I'm at and being the um, uh, kind of the Johnny Bravo, if you listen to Simon Sinek, or the cloud cover for the team. And so that takes some skill and some practice because essentially I was being managed from a command and control standpoint and a results only standpoint. So I needed to go in and say who was on write-ups and why wasn't someone else on write-ups and what are what's the action plan for this, um, you know, miss this quarter, which by the way is the first quarter they've ever missed and there's no statistical analysis, <laughs> but let's go ahead and, you know, have an action plan and all of that. And so I would have to manage up that way but I never took it down, right? So mm -hmm. I never then passed that through to my team. In fact, my team had no idea that I was doing that. <laughs> and so mm. essentially at the end of the day, you know, these senior leaders, they cared more about the results than the how I got them, right? <laughs> like, in fact, yeah. they, they did like, if I didn't tell them, they probably didn't know how I was getting them. And so figuring out what are the hot buttons, right? I know this this senior, this VP is very risk averse. And so I'm going to manage up by making sure that I'm managing up on the, you know, the risk averse uh, kind of side of him. This other VP is super focused on the customer experience. And I want to make sure that I'm delivering on, on what he's looking for on the customer experience and how I get there just might look a little differently than what they realize. And so I know that's yeah. not like the best advice, but that's the best I've got right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm always curious. I mean, I think it's a good question that doesn't have an easy answer. You know, if you look at, let's say in the realm of healthcare, somebody like uh, a John Toussaint, when he was the CEO at Fetacare, when uh, Gary Kaplan, who is still CEO at Virginia Mesa Medical Center, they each had, you know, people who were a spark and, and, and a prod to, you know, think differently. It came from someone um, they respected and, and 
you know, hopefully that spark can go upward in an organization. I mean, if the CEO doesn't respect the people who work for them, they might be a lost cause. But, um, you know, uh, how can we create opportunities? You know, I think the books, there's, there's two different books, um, similar themes. One's called It's Your Ship, and the other's called Turn Your Ship Around. Those are both written by naval commanders, um, you know, talking about their transition away from that classic command and control style. So maybe, I mean, you know, you could gift somebody a book and maybe those books aren't threatening. Like, you know, there's another book out there called Freedom from Command and Control. Well, if you give that book to your CEO, they're going to get defensive, right? Absolutely. Or, you know, we, we got to figure out how to... Um, yeah. Broach the subject, right? Well, and, yeah, and I think you know the other thing I would add is I think that the best argument for changing your management style is not about um, the respect for people side, even though that might be why we want to. The best argument is that it's ineffective, right? So mm -hmm. when you can demonstrate yeah. the gap between when we manage this way, it's ineffective. Look at these results. When we lead this way, it's more effective. That is going to speak to an executive, I think, more than. And, um, you know, maybe some of the touchy-feely type of sides of, of what we like to share and talk about. Yeah. Well, there's also kind of the, the, the cognitive error of being on the wrong path with the strategy and then doubling down on it, that we just yes. need to be more commandy and more controlling. Um, <laughs> gosh. Um, all right. Another comment here or a question from Jordan. Are you going to speak at any further ACMP conferences? You should. Oh, well, thank you. You know, I don't have any of the big conferences on the, the books right now. Um, I've done some some local stuff with some industry specific uh, trade organizations. And then if anybody is uh, locally based in Colorado, which is where I am, I'm very active in volunteering with the Colorado Lean Network. So I do a lot of um, work there and, and speaking there. But uh, I'm always open to invitations is what I'll say. Yeah. All right. Um, there's another question here. Do you have what are your favorite books on? On change, whether it's Ed Shine or others. Um, so you know that's a great question. Um, I think it depends on the type of learner that you are. So, you know, so Shine's book. You obviously I quoted that several times through this presentation, and as I've prepared sessions on change, I've done a lot of research there, and there's some really good stuff in there. But it is a big, thick academic book. So it is not something, for example, that I would share with my team of leaders and say, let's read this one together. It's, you know, you have to, I think you have to be a certain type of learner to um, really want to dig into that. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, I'm going to kind of answer the question without answering it. I, you know, I think that my favorite is uh, learning by doing, learning by trying <laughs> more than, uh, than learning through the books. Yeah. And that's not a book called Learning by Doing. That's actual oh, yes, quote unquote, yes. <laughs> air quotes, learning, learning by doing. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we are at uh, the top of the hour. So we'll go ahead and wrap up on, on behalf of uh, Kinexus and the entire team here. I would like to thank our presenter, uh, Jamie Parker. Um, you can reach out to her. Uh, you can see her email address, her website, processplusresults.com. Uh, Jamie, do you have a, a final thought you might want to uh, leave for the audience as we sign off? 
Yeah, the only thing I would say is that, you know, you invested in yourself by being here on this webinar or by watching the replay. And um, I think that is such a great activity that, that you've done and it's an investment. And then really make sure you capitalize that on, on that investment by, by trying, by practicing, by taking it one step further. Well, it's great advice. A couple other thank yous from Barbara, Andrew. Um, and again, I will say thank you. Jamie, thank you everybody who's tuned in or watched the recording. Um, we will hopefully see you on uh, future webinars. Thanks again.